Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. The title of this message is The Joy of Gospel Discontentment, and that'll need some explaining. Hopefully it becomes clear. I'll be teaching from the New Living Translation again this week. I hope that was good for you guys last week. I actually don't care. I'm going to do it again. It was good for me. So New Living Translation, one more time. Let's start reading in verse 10 of Philippians 3. Paul says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I haven't achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. And if you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this morning you're here with us and you're desiring to speak to us. We ask for open hearts and minds to hear that by grace you would make us not only attentive to your word, but receptive to your word. We believe that the work of your spirit through your word is transformative in our lives. And Lord, we don't want to settle. We don't want to be content. We don't want to stay in the same place. We want to go deeper with you, further with you. We want to press on. We want to experience everything that you have for us. And so Lord, if, if there be any of us today that are complacent, we ask that you'd rattle us. Any of us that have slidden backwards in our walk with you, we ask that you grab us and pull us forward. Jesus, deal with anything in our lives that's competing, that would have a hold on our hearts and our minds and, and not allow us to see you as the greatest treasure. Lord, deal with those things. We believe you to be the greatest treasure. We ask together that you'd please anoint me to teach and preach you that I would communicate by the grace of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in such a way that Christ, you would seem more beautiful and desirous to us than ever before. You got to do that work, Holy Spirit. So we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're coming out of this thought that we saw last week at the end of verse 9 that said, God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. God's way... Okay, in juxtaposition to any other way that humanity has dreamed up, God's way of making us right with him. And all of humanity has a sense that I need to be right with God at one time or another. Either you sense that right now or you will sense that on your deathbed. God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Okay, we only get right with God through faith. Faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. And now faith in that doesn't merely to believe in it, not just to agree that it happened, but to put the full weight of our existence and our hope and our future on that fact. That Christ died in our place on the cross and rose again to give us new life. 
God's way of making us right with himself depends on our putting all of our trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, what we want to see in our text today is this, that even though, as we learned last week, the Christian life starts in total dependence on what Jesus has done for us, not anything that we could do for him or for ourselves, and even though the Christian life continues with that same foundational bedrock, right, that it's all about Christ's performance, not our performance, even in light of those things, the Christian will find his or herself wanting and needing to press on and reach forward in order to experience in an ever-increasing measure what Jesus has done for us. So that wherever we are in terms of growth, there ought to be in our lives this sort of holy discontentment. This holy, gospel-oriented discontentment. This sense that even though I have everything that I need in Jesus, right? That's part of the gospel message. Even though I have everything that I need in Jesus, I want more of Jesus. I want more of those things. I want to experience more of his person and his presence and his power. I don't want to just settle. I don't want to just stay here. There ought to be in every Christian this holy gospel-oriented sense of discontentment. Yes, I have everything that I need because of the gospel, but gosh, I want more of Jesus. A.W. Tozer uh, wrote one of the most influential books on my life, The Pursuit of God, second Christian book I ever read. And on page 19 or 23, depending on which printing and edition you have, at the end of that chapter, he prayed this prayer. I have tasted of thee, and it has both satisfied me and made me hungry for more. Every Christian ought to say, I'm totally satisfied in Jesus. But I want more. I can't get enough. That's what's going on with Paul here. That's why he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So there's three things that Paul says is going on here in his holy discontentment. Number one, he says, I want to know Christ. Number two, I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And number three, I want to suffer with him. So in his holy discontentment, he says, I want to know Jesus. Well, what's he talking about? Because Paul already knew Jesus. By this time, he's been a Christian for about 30 years. And you can make an argument that if anybody alive at that time knew Jesus, it was Paul. So what's he saying? I want to know Christ. He's simply saying, I want more. I want to know him more. And the Greek word used there is not just talking about an intellectual knowledge, just not not about knowing of, but it's speaking of personal knowledge, experiential knowledge. You see, some Christians are satisfied, and I'm not sure you'd call them Christians. Some people are satisfied to just know about Jesus. They would think that's enough, but the Bible will paint a different picture. You see, see, we're not, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things involved in our salvation, but the main thing is that we're brought into a loving relationship with God. We're restored to relationship. Yes, we don't feel guilty anymore. Yes, we don't bear the penalty anymore. Yes, we're going to heaven. Yes, yes, yes. But the main thing is that we're in this love affair with Jesus. 
And Paul says, I want more of that. I can't get enough of that. I want to know Christ. So the gospel says we have everything that we need in Jesus, but it goes on to say that we should be desiring to experience more and more, a holy discontentment. Peter spoke of the same thing. In his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he says this, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises, okay? God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, to live a godly life, it says there. And we experience this by coming to know him. And that word in the Greek there, know, is not your normal word for know in Greek, gnosis, but it's epinosis, okay? It's speaking of something deeper. It's speaking of clear and exact knowledge. It's speaking of experiential knowledge. It's talking about experiencing Jesus. The Greek word denotes thorough participation in the object, in this case, Jesus, on the part of the subject, in this case, us. So what the Christian is supposed to do is roll up his or her sleeves and dive into the person of Jesus and gain some experiential, participatory, clear, exact, relational knowledge of him. And in that relationship, we have everything that we need for life and for godliness. So there ought to be this sense in all of our lives of holy discontentment. Not, not in the sense that you're discontent, you don't, you don't feel forgiven. That, that's a theological issue you need to wrestle through. You are forgiven. How could God prove that anymore? What, what more could he do? Not the sense that, oh, I, I don't have enough blessings. But this sense of, I, I want more of Jesus and what it means to experience him all the time. And I, I think what this requires on our behalf is some honest introspection to honestly kind of sit down and take stock of our lives and, and ask ourselves questions like, why am I not really on mission with Christ? Why, why am I just doing my thing in my life? Why am I not living for something bigger, the cause of Christ in the world? Why do I have this constant need for entertainment? Well, how, why is it that today what I want to do is, is just surf or skateboard or have fun or, or I just want to watch the latest movie or latest thing on TV or the latest contest online? Or Why do I have this need for constant stimulation and entertainment but I don't have a desire to commune with Christ in the Word of God in the Bible? Why do I see all these things going on in the world but I'm in no way moved to pray for Him? Why is my heart not more broken for my friends and my family that are lost apart from Jesus? Another friend of mine died this week. It's been two weeks. Two close friends have died. Both of them tragic deaths. And I I just, more than ever, am just burdened with this thing of, man, my heart breaks when these guys die, but why wasn't my heart breaking for them to know Jesus before they died. Why can I go through life and not tell people that I love about Christ? What's wrong in my heart? Why don't I have a burden for the lost? Well, why don't I pray and engage in, pray about and engage in the issues of the world? Why am I so needing of entertainment and stimulus? Why can't I commune with Jesus? 
Why am I not on mission? I think we need some honest introspection and then we look at those things in light of the word. That ought to develop some holy discontentment. Where we say, yeah, I'm really glad I'm not where I was. Amen? Anybody feel that way? Oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm not where I was. But man, I'm not where I want to be. I want more of the Lord, more of what he has for me. I want to know him in a deeper way. That's what Paul is saying here. And then secondly, he says, I want to experience the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Resurrection power, it's called. Be careful here. It's not that Paul wants power. Everyone in our culture wants power and to be powerful. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that he wants to experience God's power in his life in a transformative, life-changing way. That he wants to be ever increasingly changed by the power of God. Now, first of all, it takes the power of God to change us. That's how jacked up we are, right? Some of you are finally realizing you can't change yourself. You're falling in the same old stuff over and over again. Some of you ladies have been married to the same guy for 20 years. You're like, he won't change. I've been trying to change him for 20 years. You can't change that mess of a man. Only God's power changes, Paul's saying, I want to experience more of the transformation. I want to be more and more conformed to the image of God. I want to be less like me and more like Jesus. And that, that, that takes the power of God to accomplish. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, then Paul prays the same thing for others. He says, I pray that your hearts may be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And I also pray that you will understand, look, the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. That is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. I don't don't know that we always realize when faced with the issues of life that the same power that it took to raise Christ from the grave and conquer death is what God uses to work in us. To conquer the things that are coming against us. To deal with our issues. To transform us. Paul's saying, I, I, I want to experience more of that. And Paul had been radically transformed. Right? He'd already been radically transformed. He was a Christian killer. He used to go around looking for Christians to kill. Now he's a Christian maker. He used to persecute the church. Now he's planting churches. Homeboy was changed. (laughs) Radical change. But he says, that's not enough. I got a holy discontentment. I want more. That's the way that we ought to be. And you know what? Let me just say, and I've said it before, and I want to say it again, and it's a hard thing to say and to hear. But if your life hasn't been changed, you haven't been saved. We're saved by placing our faith, all of our hope and our trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says that we're born again. That we're made brand new. Do over, start over. New creations in Christ. That we encounter Christ when we come to him in faith, repent of our sins, ask to be forgiven. You cannot encounter Jesus and be the same. And, and yet, see, see here's, here's the problem. In this country, oftentimes, from the pulpits, it's our fault. We've pushed easy believism. Just say you believe in Jesus. Just say, say you believe in Jesus. Raise your hand. Raise, okay, you're saved. 
It's not what it is, man. You need to literally actually encounter Christ because of what he's done on the cross. You are born again and then your life is different. Your change. If there's not transformation, then you have not been saved. It doesn't mean that you're there yet. Paul's going to say that in a moment. But you're not here. You're not where you were. There, there is a process of change taking place. If your life hasn't been changed by Jesus, you don't know Jesus. A lot of people think they know Jesus. Sitting in church, you go to church, you do, blah, 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 but you don't actually know him. Paul says, I want to know him and the power that changes lives. He's passionate about this in Ephesians 3. He says, I fall on my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. The Christian life is one of power and ought to be ever increasingly so. Not the accumulation of power, not necessarily the exercising of power but the working of God's power in us and through us to transform us and to change the world. You see, and this flips religion upside down on its head. Religion says, well, okay, here's what you need to do. You, you want to reach God? You need to try harder. You want to reach God? You need to be better. That's what you need to do if you want to reach God. But the Christian gospel says, God has already reached you in the person of Jesus. It's not about you being better or trying harder. You've been made brand new. And there's power of the person of the Holy Spirit to transform your life. Paul says, I want more of that. And then he says, in his holy discontentment, that he wants to suffer with Christ. Point number three, I want to suffer with Christ. Now, it's not just that Paul wanted to suffer Okay, he's not a masochist. He's not, he's not twisted. He didn't enjoy pain. But the functional phrase there is with Christ. I want to suffer with Jesus. He knew he was going to suffer. We're all going to suffer. Everybody suffers. That's part of humanity. There's, there's no escaping suffering. What separates a Christian is a Christian wants to suffer with Jesus. Paul said, I want to suffer with Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3 tells us about Jesus prophetically that he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. So that in some way, because Christ suffered and knew what it was to suffer, we experience a different kind of fellowship with him when we suffer. In fact, the New American Standard uses a phraseology in verse 10, the fellowship of his suffering, the sharing of his suffering. Paul had discovered that, that the more painful life got, the more clear Jesus became. That, that Christ met him in his brokenness. The more difficult stuff was, the more real Christ was. And that he experienced more of Jesus 
in pain and suffering than he ever did in ease and in blessing. And I, 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 I just want to testify. For me and my family, this year has been the, the worst year of our lives. You guys know that. I, I keep you in the loop on that. My daughter, second round of cancer, it's been the worst year of our lives. But it has also been the best year of our lives. That we have experienced more of Jesus in our pain than we ever did in our ease. We, we know Christ better in suffering than we did in blessing. And so because of this, then the Christian is enabled to say this, this counterintuitive freaky thing of, I want to suffer with Jesus. I want to be made like him in his death, sharing in his death. I want there to be less of me and more of him. I want to experience what it means, Romans chapter 6, that I've been crucified with Christ. Because I find the lower I get, the more beautiful he is. The more that the things I count on in this world, the more that they're shaken, the more clearly I see Christ, and then the more rightly I can care about the things in the world. It's not that we cease to care about the things in the world, we care about them more rightly. And, you know, Paul, Paul knew suffering. I just want to read to you a passage from 2 Corinthians 11. Don't go there, I'll read it. It's fun to just listen to this one. He says, is anybody serving Jesus? I'm serving way more. Paul kind of boasted sometimes. He says, I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped more times without number, and faced death again and again. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, which meant they throw rocks at him, not that he smoked something. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and dangers from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, dangers in the desert, dangers on the seas. And I have faced danger from men and women who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, and during many sleepless nights, I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And besides all this, I have upon me the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. That was Paul's experience in ministry. That makes you want to go into ministry, right? (laughs) Paul's saying, join me in ministry. That, That was his experience. But at the end of his life then, after all of that, he isn't going... Oh man, just just let me retire now. Just, just let me be comfortable now. Can, just, just let me get a little bit of rest and ease now. No, he's saying, I want to suffer more. Because the more I do, the more I experience Jesus. And again, it, it's not about the pain. He doesn't love pain. Uh, but, but there's this truth that because Christ suffered, when we suffer, we discover him in a new and profound way. Think, think about the message that, that, that we're trying to reflect to the world. That, that Christ is the ultimate treasure. So, so if then, when, when things go wrong, we, we find our joy and our security and our identity and our hope in Christ, that, then that communicates to the world that Jesus really is better than, than, than the other stuff in the world. When the relationships go wrong, when the job fails and the promotion didn't come through, when the bank account wavers, when our health gives out, when our children are dying, if we lose our joy in all of those things, then was our joy ever really in Christ? 
And, and if those things cause us to lose our joy, then what the world sits back and says is, oh, they actually love all the same things we do. They just thought Jesus was going to give them to them. You see, if you lose your joy when your child dies, was your joy in your child? That's been what I'm facing. If, if you lose your joy when you lose your bank account, then was your joy there? See, if our joy is in Jesus, then all other loss actually brings us greater joy because what the Christian does when we experience loss and pain is we cling more to Jesus. I mean, we just, we just cling to Jesus. And because he's our source of joy, then the harder things get, we actually find us, ourselves having more of this deep, real, abiding joy. And, and Paul says, gosh, the harder things have gotten, the, the, the more I experience Jesus and his love. So I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to go all the way in that. John Calvin said, you must submit to supreme suffering in order to discover the completion of joy. And so all of this with the result that Paul says at the end of verse 11, one way or another, I'm going to experience the resurrection from the dead. Whether it's in death, right, when the dead are resurrected, and those who reject Jesus are resurrected to judgment, the Bible says, and those who by faith have put their trust in what Christ did on the cross for them are resurrected to heaven and eternal life. But then there is also the resurrected life in this life to live. He says, one way or another, whether I live or I die through my sufferings, I'm going to experience the resurrected life that's spoken of in Romans chapter 6. That I died with Christ and now I'm risen to newness with Christ. I'm going to experience powerful new life, he says. And then he makes this confession in verse 12. He says, "I, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. Perfection there meaning maturity or completeness. But I press on to possess that perfection, that completeness, that maturity, for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. So Paul states the obvious, that he is in process. And all of us are in process. You need to realize that, that the Christian life is a process, right? It's not an overnight thing. We're not where we want to be, but thank God we're not where we once were. We're all in process. He, He admits that. And he also shows us here that True maturity knows that it's not mature, right? Paul says, well, I I realize that I'm not there yet. Paul's a mature Christian. So true maturity realizes it's not fully mature because don't you think that the more you discover Jesus, the more you realize there is to discover of Jesus? And just about the time you think maybe somehow you're getting there, you're like, dude, I am not even on the map. Right, even when it comes to our sinfulness, God is so nice because he'll like show you some sinfulness and then he'll give you that resurrection power to get victory and then you get victory and you're like, dude, I'm here. And Jesus is like, okay, wait a second. Calmate, mijo, mira. And then he just shows you the next level of your sin. You're just like, ah, just worse than I ever thought I was. I need Jesus more now than I needed him ever before. Maturity realizes that. If you don't think that, you're immature and you're blind and your heart is numb to the things of God. You're way more jacked up than you think. (laughs) But then maturity doesn't just realize that it's not quite there yet. But then maturity also says, I'm going to get there. That's what he says. He says, I'm going to press 
on to possess everything that Christ has for me. I like the way the English Standard Version puts it here, the ESV. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In light of what Christ has done, that he owns me, that he bought me, that I'm his, I'm going after everything that he is. I'm going to own it. I'm going to make it my own. That was Paul's all-consuming passion. And here's how he does it. Verse 13, he confesses again, maybe now even thinking more clearly on how far he is. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing. Okay, here's how he does it. I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward. That was Paul's strategy to deal with gospel-oriented, holy discontentment. I forget the past and I look to the future, to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. I focus on this one thing. I forget the past. Now, uh, when it comes to forgetting the past, obviously this is not a blanket statement. Like, forget your past. Totally. Don't do that. Remember good things and awesome things and how to do your math tables and stuff like that. There's stuff you want to remember. Um, Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. So it's not a blanket statement that you're a Christian now. You got to just deny and forget your past. That's stupid. Don't be stupid. What we're supposed to forget is anything that would hinder our present pursuit of pressing on toward Jesus Christ. Anything that would hinder that. Now, I I could think of a few things that might hinder that from our past. One would be, Past victories. Okay, this seems counterintuitive, but we should kind of forget about past victories. Not in the sense that we shouldn't celebrate them. We should. God's people should all be about celebration. But we shouldn't count on them. Right? We, 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 we shouldn't... Wow, that was a crazy stutter right there. <laughs> like Elmer Fudd, right? <laughs> that was awesome. <clears throat> D.A. Carson does that too. We, we have so much in common. What, what was I saying? We shouldn't rely on those past victories. In other words, let me say it a different way. Yesterday's battles were won with yesterday's grace. Okay, yesterday's battles were won with yesterday's grace. You need Jesus today. Jesus, I need you more today than I need you yesterday. Today's battles require new grace, fresh grace from God. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the idea. Daily dependence upon Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, take heed, take, I'll give it to you in the NASB. Take heed any man who thinks he is strong, lest he fall. In other words, yeah, you had these victories and you're like walking, you're doing right. Don't lean on that. Like, yes, look, look what I've done, lest he fall. But for the temptations that are facing you today, you need the grace of God today. So we celebrate those past victories, but we don't rest on our laurels. We press into Jesus to meet the needs of today. The second thing that's in the past that we kind of need to forget are past losses. And we're, that, that makes a little more sense to us, right? Past losses, because we all have a past, some of us more than others. And, uh, <clears throat> well, let me show you how Paul dealt with that. Paul had a past, a pretty serious past. And, and look what he says in 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. 
But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. And then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. You see, Paul had a past, and a really serious past, but he didn't let his past paralyze him. He let his past propel him and make him even more bold to tell about the resurrection transforming power of Jesus. His life was a testimony. You see, some of you, man, just really messed up in the past. I know what that's like. I really know what that's like. But, but, but because of what the cross has done, we're not to be paralyzed by those things. Some people get so trapped in those things. Man, I did this. I, however horrific it was, and, and that could become paralyzing. Listen, the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus deals with that. And, and the reason that Jesus came was to deal with that. And he delights in taking the worst sinners and using them for his glory. Like the worst possible one, you're the best candidate to experience the most of Jesus. Uh, That's what Paul is saying here. So he forgets the past losses in a way that would paralyze him, okay? And he lets them propel him. He's not just caught up in all that regret because it's under the blood. And he, he really sees past hurts in the same way. We're supposed to see past hurts in the same way. We've all been hurt in the past. We've all been wounded. But if you, if you don't kind of forget those things, then they'll bind you to the past and they'll keep you from experiencing the fullness of Christ in the present and moving forward into the future. You get bound to the past. That's why Hebrews 12 says, work at living with, at peace with everyone. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness springs up to trouble you, corrupting many. Bitterness just has this, this decimating work that it does in our lives. And, and when we refuse to forgive, when we stay bound to the hurts of the past, then, then we stay bogged down in the past. We get chained to those things that Christ died for. And it keeps us from the present pursuit. Some of you today, you need to forgive what he did. You need to forgive what she did. You, you're bound to it. You're chained to it. You are now enslaved to it. But Christ died to set us free from everything that would hinder. And so Paul's saying, when it comes to my past victories, I'm not going to rest on the laurels there. I'll I'll remember them and celebrate them in a certain way, but I got to forget about them. And when it comes to my my past, I got to forget about that. I got to be propelled toward the future because of the grace of God. And when it comes to those hurts, I, I, I can't just be chained to those anymore. Instead, I'm looking forward to what lies ahead, he says in verse 13. I'm reaching forward, it says in the New American Standard. And what lies ahead? Man, glory with God. We're going to be in glory with God. This is not fairy tale stuff. This is for real. We are going to be in glory with God. The Christian is able to say, this is bad as it's ever going to get. Think, think about someone without Christ. They have to say, gosh, I think this is as good as it will ever get. Especially if they're like 33 and they're just rounding the hill. In my opinion, once you're over 33, you're over the hill. So you're just, I'm 38, so I'm, I'm going downhill. Some of you are like, like kamikaze dive bomb downhill. But for the, 
I'm the meanest pastor in the whole world. I know. But for the person without Jesus, they're thinking, is this as good as it's ever going to get? And we just, we just know this is as bad as it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better and way better. And so we look forward to that. We, we fix our mind on those things. Colossians 3 speaks of this. It says, Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you died to this life, listen to this phrase, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. How beautiful is that? I love that. Your life is hidden in Christ with God. I, I like that because... Man, when life gets hard, don't you just sometimes want to hide with Jesus? Are you ever the place where you're just like, hold me, Jesus, just hold me? Is it just me? Am I a girl and you guys are all men? Not to be sexist? Wow, I'm sexist and mean. I really am. But I mean, right, so many times in my life, I'm just like, oh, Jesus, hold me. I just want to hide in you. And he does that. He meets his people in that way. And Paul's saying there in Colossians, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. So set your sights on the realities of heaven, the realities of heaven. That Christ is ruling and reigning. He's on the throne. He's in control. You have truly and forever been forgiven. You are accepted. You are adored. Your eternal security is secure and he's preparing a place for you. Set your mind on those things. And that enables us to, as it says in verse 14, press on to reach the end of the race. Action imagery again. Press on, reaching forward. The idea of a race. The gospel says that we have everything that we need in Christ, but we need to press in to possess it. See, the problem with a lot of Christians is that we're passive in our Christianity. We just kind of have this fire insurance. Okay, I'm saved. That's great. Now I'm just going to kind of go through life. And, you know, there's not a relationship in the world that does well in, when you're passive with it. Right? God designed relationships that you've, you've got to be active. You've got to be investing. You've got to be going after that thing. Any relationship that you have a passive attitude toward will be a lesser relationship. And, and there's some relationships where it's okay to do that. But it's not okay to do that with Jesus. He's your most important relationship. There shouldn't be a fiber of our being that's passive about Jesus. We should be aggressive, racing, Paul says in 1 Timothy, don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. In other words, quit playing games. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle for our hope is in the living God who is the savior of all people and particularly of all believers. Yeah, we've been saved totally according to what Christ has done for us, but we've been saved into relationship. We need to press into it. 1 Corinthians 9. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets surprised? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Here's what I'm getting at in all this. 
Nobody stumbles into godliness. Nobody stumbles into intimacy with Christ. We press into it. We reach forward. We go ahead. We lay hold of those things. We pursue. I want to know Christ in his life changing power more. We press in and pursue. Nobody stumbles into godliness. It doesn't work that way. Even the person that gets the miracle, they don't stumble into godliness. There's still that cultivation of relationship. Israel proved that. They saw miracle after miracle in the Exodus, and yet they were completely idolatrous. And this is perhaps where we just gain a lot of insight into why Paul was full of joy even though he suffered so much, it was because he refused to settle. He had a holy discontentment. He was always pressing in and looking forward to the source of his joy, getting nearer and nearer to the person of Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 15, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you, but we must hold on to the progress we have already made. In other words, if you don't hear what I'm saying, Paul says, at least don't backslide. At least hold on to where you're at in the Lord. And and there's three people in this room this morning. There's people that are just holding on. You just just hold on. There's not a lot of forward progress in your experience of Christ. Others of you have, have backslid. There was a time where you were more on fire for Jesus than you are now. And then others who are pressing forward, running the race, going for it, wanting to know more of Christ and experience more of his life's transforming power. And none of us are okay. Paul was moving forward and said, oh, but more. All of us need to press into the person of Jesus Christ more. And that means we need to develop a holy gospel-centered discontentment forget about anything in the past that would hinder that present pursuit and reach forward and press on with every fiber of your being because I guarantee you that if you make your life pursuit knowing Jesus more, you will never be disappointed. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for this truth. Now we ask for grace that would enable us to live according to it. Grace, Lord, grace for today. Lord, we love you, but we're ashamed of our lack of love. We want you, but we're ashamed of our lack of desire. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and just put a, put a magnifying glass, put, put a spotlight on the person of Christ. Somehow unveil our eyes. Let us see the glory of God. Give us a more clear picture and understanding and view of who Christ is. Everything else would just seem superfluous as it is. Jesus, by your spirit, cause us to want you more and come and deal with those things in our lives that would compete for your primacy in our lives, Lord. Thank you that you have mercy on us. Thank you that you're much nicer than I am. Come in your mercy and move in our midst. Prayer team is up here if you need any help. Communion is here. Let's press into Jesus.